um, your phone or a Bible or something, you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. been working through Colossians now for several weeks. Um, Colossians is not a long book, um, so we will not be in here too much longer. Um, just a reminder, Colossians is um, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, written to a church he has not visited, did not plant, um, hopes to visit, hopes to minister to in person. He's writing it from prison um, in the early 60s um, to a church of kind of, uh, to a community of waning significance. And it's been mostly a very positive letter. He's got some warnings for them in regards to um, false teachers that have, are arising up in the community. But mostly it's a, it's a young church that he is encouraging and he is pastoring and loving from afar. And so before we, we jump into Colossians 3 this morning, um, I, I want to uh, talk, we're going to talk a little bit about culture this morning. And so you've, you've walked in places, right? Restaurants, um, workplaces that would claim to have a certain culture, right, of, of how they do things. Um, and so not too long ago, um, I took, went to an event um, locally, and when we walked in, um, there was like... The, like it was a public event. But when I walked in with my family, um, everyone kind of turned and looked. Like, what are you doing here? Like, it was like a palpable like, sense of like, you're not supposed to be here. It's strange that you're here. And it was just like a public event. And what I realized was there weren't a lot of kids around. And all of a sudden, even though it was a public event for families, all, I brought kids, and that was apparently like breaking a cardinal rule that I was unaware of. And so although no one said anything, no one said anything, there was like a feel, right, of you're not really wanted. And this is kind of creating um, some concern for us. Um, the kids did awesome, um, right? And, and so when we left, but I, I went home and I told Carmen, I'm like, it was just kind of bizarre. Like, it was like, hey, buddy, yeah, yeah. He didn't even do that at the thing, right? Like... That did not happen, right? And so, it, but right, you felt um, that there's, a, there's one culture that's being talked about, there was another culture that was being perceived, right? And so for some of you, you've walked into a restaurant, right, that, that like has this, like, we're, we're a family feel, and yet you feel like you're just a number, right? Or maybe you walk into a workplace that boasts, like, we're a family, or we're, we're really easygoing, or we're really laid back, and then you're like... Yeah, I don't get that. Like, you can say that, right? And your HR person can talk about it all the time, but that doesn't mean that's the feel or the culture that is actually um, happening. Um, you, you've probably experienced that on a team, right? Where um, the coach can voice a certain culture, but if the players haven't bought in, then that's not the culture that, that takes place. Um, and, and unfortunately, most of you have probably experienced that, hopefully to the good, but maybe also to the negative in churches. Right, like there's a certain experience and a feel as you walk into a church that you're like, huh, I, this this isn't. I don't think how it's supposed to feel or how I'm supposed to be received. So Paul this morning is going to talk to the church in in Colossae about what it looks like to be a corporate family of God. Last week we saw that he brought in, he said, there's some things now that because you have died with Christ, right? Like you're, you're living now, and they, there are things that you need to put off. And so he used two images. He says some things you need to put them to death, 
And then he comes in and says, or you, you take them off, right? Like the idea of like stripping and removing things from you. This morning, he's going to go on to what we're supposed to actually put on. So let's pick up in verse 11. And as we begin, remember that as we ended last week in verse 10, it's a process. It is not a one and done. Right? He says it is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It is a process of sanctification. And although we, in the moment of salvation, are completely justified, right? we have gained um, right relationship with God, the process of becoming Christ-like is a process from one degree of glory to the next. So, verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in, and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so as we talk this morning about kind of culture as, as Christians in the church, right? we're going to look at it in, in three regards. One, who's a part of the church? Um, what should it look like? And how do we get it? And so if we begin in verse 11, is who's a part of this? Paul just kind of lists some big topics, big categories, general categories of people. And they're, they're really contrast. He says, here, meaning in the church, in, in the believing community, there's not gr- Greek or Jew, which would have basically been those who were the family of God, the nation of God, and anyone else, right? This idea of those who are religious and those who are pagan. He's like, here, we're not defining ourselves as Greek or Jews. As circumcised, meaning again religious or uncircumcised, meaning those who had not followed the law. Barbarians, right? Those who would have been seen as, as uncouth, uncouth and unwelcomed. Scythian, which was a specific type of barbarian, which was just kind of the bottom, right? It says like they just like to kill people, right? Like the idea that they were just kind of the worst of the worst. There's not slaves or free. And what he's saying is he's laying these categories out. What he's not saying is that there's no longer gender, there's no longer nationality, that there's no longer household roles. As we continue in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he's going to talk about what it looks like in marriage with a man and a woman. He's going to talk about what it looks like in all of these roles and identities that we have in life. What Paul is saying here is this, is that the barriers have come down and we now have an, an identity that trumps the rest of them. You're still going to be male or female. You're still going to be a Greek or a Jew, right? You're still going to be um, a husband or a wife. You're still going to be right an employer or an employee. You're still going to be those things, right? You're just going to be a Christian above them. That is going to be your primary identifier. 
And so no longer do we beat our chest to say, look, I'm, I'm a Jew and you're not, right? I was circumcised and you're not, and looking to find superiority. That there's equal footing before the Lord. That based on your nationality, your skin color, your gender, your role in society, your bank account number. There's nothing that gains us more status with God. There's nothing that gains us more footing. There's nothing that gains us superiority over another. That before the cross, we are equal in that we need a Savior, a Rescuer. And that when He loves you, it's a love that's the same. And He is faithful and good to do that. And so what are happening here are worldly barriers are going down. And He's like, you're not going to break relationship over those things anymore because Christ is your primary identifier and He's calling us to unity. He's calling us to be family. He's calling us to love one another. He continues. So put on then, right, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, right? So listen to how he talks about it. He says, you're God's chosen ones. Like, He has put the identity of Christ upon you. That you're holy. That you're beloved. Right? He is really bringing back this idea of how um, the nation of Israel would have been talked about in the Old Testament. Listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Beginning in verse 6. Writing to the nation of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Right? That's the language that, that the Old Testament would have talked about Israel. That God treasured them, that He loved them, and it was not based on their might or their intellect or their merit. He loved them and chose them and held them and kept them. Now what Paul is telling us is, listen, it's not because you're Greek or Jew. It's not because you're American. It's not because you're rich. It's not because you're intelligent. It's not because you have a lot of money. It's not because you've been religious. He goes, He chose you. Not based on your merit. Not based on your ethnicity. Not based on skin color. He loves you. And you are holy and beloved to Him. And so the good news and the invite to all of us this morning is that if, if Scythians and barbarians and the uncircumcised and the non-Jew are welcome in, there is no one who is not welcome in. There is nothing that disqualifies you from receiving the grace and love and kindness and mercy of God. It is available to all of us. You have not sinned so far that you cannot receive the grace and love of God. His grace far outruns our sin. So this morning, don't put yourself on the, that the, we're out of the circle because I'm not these things, right? And you start to list, well, you know, I haven't always been moral, or I haven't always been in church, or I haven't always been good, or I haven't always... Those things are not what save us. They're not what gain us favor. They're not what gain us merit. Jesus does that. 
And he invites all in to know him, to receive him, to trust him, to love him. The way Peter would say this in the New Testament, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, that is us. Once we were not a people, once we hadn't received mercy, and now we have, and we belong to Him, and we get to proclaim the excellencies of the One who has called us out of the domain of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of the Son. And so that is who this letter is for. That is who Paul is looking to encourage and to say now there are some things that we're not just going to put off that we also need to put on. Right? So let's go to verse 12. What should it look like? Put on then. Right? Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if one has complaint against the other, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's contrasting earlier what we were supposed to put off. Now he's talking about what it is that we're supposed to put on. He's fleshing out the difficult nature of verse 11. Right? Because this morning we can nod and say, that's beautiful. Right? Like that in the Lord, that we all have equal standing. And yet we can also watch the news and see that that's not how people respond. That we tend to divide over everything. Right? Over everything. And that there are still those, right, that would hold prejudice in their hearts. There are still those that would hold um, superiority based on their education or their finances. There would be those who, over their family's legacy or name, right, that, that we tend to look for ways to elevate ourselves and to be superior over others. And we can do it in a myriad of ways. And so, although it's, verse 11 is beautiful, and we want to nod our heads in agreement and say, yes, more of that. We know the reality is that is extraordinarily difficult. It's extraordinarily difficult. So all of a sudden, to put off previous thoughts and ideas and attitudes towards those who would be a contrast to us. To see that Jesus is sufficient to have in common with someone who I might have everything else not in common, right? I might be a contrast to you in every way, and yet if we both have Jesus... Is that sufficient for us to be brothers and sisters? Because that's what Paul is calling us to here. It's a weighty and a heavy, difficult work, but it is a necessary reality. And so Paul is saying, listen, it's not just what you don't do, it's not just what you put off, it's also what you put on and who you are to become. And so he lists five virtues. The first, that you would have a compassionate heart. The idea here is that you are merciful, or that you feel something for others. And when you see them in pain, or in struggle, or in strife, or in difficulty, you're not um, dispassionate, right? You're not looking at them going, ah, that's kind of your, your bed to sleep in. 
that you feel something for them. Why? Why do we have compassionate, merciful hearts of emotion towards others? Because God has been compassionate to us. Right? When He looked at the bed that we had made of sin and of rebellion and of rejection of Him, He did not go, well, it's going to be fun for you one day on Judgment Day. He sent Jesus. He had compassion upon those who did not deserve compassion. He had mercy on those who did not deserve mercy. And He did something about it. And then He doesn't just bring us in and say, okay, yeah, you you skirted the boundary, you're in, but stay over on your side of heaven. He brings us to His table. Right where we technically don't belong, and yet we belong because we've been made sons and daughters of the King. That He had compassion upon us. That we have mercy. And so we want to reflect the character and the image of God. And that we will be a compassionate people as the church towards one another. He continues, not just compassionate hearts, but kindness. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we're reminded of this from God. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and His patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That God is patient with us and He is kind to us. It was demonstrated in the fact that Jesus came and lived under the law was crushed and crucified on a cross in our place, right? suffered mocking and humiliation and beating and shame that he did not deserve and was not his, as he said, in the throne in heaven. Right? Like he left the place he belonged to come as a demonstrated kindness to us to show compassion and kindness. It is demonstrated. So church, for us, it means that as we are kind, that we demonstrate that kindness in concrete practical ways. And this can look like a myriad of things. Right? There's a reason that Paul doesn't lay out and say, here's what kindness is specifically. Right? Because we know that the way that your heart receives goodness and kindness can vary based on what your emotional status is, right? like where your headspace is, how your week's been. And so a kindness that happened even to me this week was a simple text from one of you who simply said, I pray for your family daily. Unprompted. I, they, didn't, they didn't spend anything. They didn't go do anything. They didn't give. They just said, I'm praying for you and your family daily. Like, what a kindness to me, to my family. And so what Paul is saying is, let's be kind to one another. And sometimes that means, like, a baked good, Right? And sometimes that means money. And sometimes that simply means a listening ear. And sometimes that's a, an encouraging text. Right? That we are kind and generous and that we do it in abundance with one another because God has demonstrated His kindness to us and not, has not simply said, I love you. He has shown His love. The third is this, is humility. This is the idea that we put others first. If you want to wrestle through the idea of humility this week, Read the first portion of Philippians chapter. Right? Like this idea that we are supposed to put others first is not a very American ideal. Right? Where it's kind of like, hey, I got to get mine. And you do you, and I'll do me, and like, I'm not going to be against you, but I'm going to make sure I get mine. And this idea of putting others first, right, is the heart of Jesus that he left heaven to walk among us to rescue us, 
And he did it in humility, in poverty, without a home or a place to lay his head. That he did it out of humility. This is Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We can think about even the humility of Jesus in the, as the triumphal entry, right? As he's riding a donkey in. Like that he's not bringing attention and, and posturing and showing himself to be the king that he is. He's humble. He's humble that we put others first. The fourth one is this, is meekness. Listen, and often when we hear the term meekness, it's a word that we don't use very often in day-to-day language. It's probably a word you maybe have never used other than to say, what is meekness? It's not weakness. It's not weakness. It is strength under control. Right? It's knowing who you are and what you are and not having to flaunt it all the time. It's a willingness to waive your rights in a situation and say, yeah, I have the right to to demand justice here. I have the right to demand an apology here. I have the right to make to be known. I have the right to let you know how I feel about this, and I'm going to waive that. I don't have to. Right? We see meekness most, um, most readily probably in parenting. Right? When, when your kid says something dumb, or when they bow up at you, right? or they accuse you of something, or they want to fight you, or what, right? like, whatever is going on in your household. Right? You're, like, you're not going, well, you just called me on the carpet. I now have to show my strength to you, five-year-old. Right? Like, like, you could, and you might. Right? But in that moment, you're going, whatever you say about me doesn't make it true. And so I can be meek in this moment. It is strength under control. I'm waving my rights to destroy you right now. Right? Because I, because I don't have to. And so meekness in the church is going... I can be patient with you. I can be long-suffering with you. I don't, I don't have to correct everything. I don't have to speak my mind on everything. I can waive my rights to be seen as the, the wisest or the smartest or the best or the kindness. Right? I can, I can waive those rights. The fifth one is this. is patience or long-suffering. Right? That we can just we can give each other some space and some grace and some kindness over the long haul. That we don't expect everything to be better in the moment. We know that it's the patience of the Lord that He tarries. Like that He doesn't come yet. Because He's not longing for any to perish. Right? Like He could just be like, alright, I'm back. Come what may. And yet He waits, not wishing for any to miss. Right? That He is patient with us. You think about your own coming to Jesus. You didn't, right? It was, it was a process, right? Of you seeing your sin and seeing the glory of God and Him being patient with you. That at first sign of rebellion, He did not destroy you. At the first sign of sin, He did not remove you. He was patient with you. And so we need to make sure that we see in these things Jesus. Right, like how Jesus has been them as we reflect them to one another. Because what he's calling us to is to live this on display that we are reflecting to one another and to the watching world 
the character of God to one another. But if listen, if we get this twisted and we begin to try to emulate things without being connected to God, we become religious. And then we begin to hold people to account. And we begin to become prideful and arrogant hypocrites who are clean on the, uh, on the outside and full of death on the inside. That is what he is referring to at the end of chapter 2 when he says, there's an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but there is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We are not compassionate so that I'm better than you. We are compassionate because we've received compassion. We are not meek so that I can lord it over you. Right? It's because my Lord and Savior, my rescuer was meek. Right? If we get the order wrong, we become religious. If we get the order right, we reflect the character of God. We are recipients of this. We are not better. And because Jesus is transforming us, we get to offer it to others as we point back to the one who has first given it to us. Like, how unique would this culture be? That you would feel like you were walking in the presence of God, right? If you were seeing forgiveness and long-suffering and kindness and compassion and humility and meekness. Church, would we be reminded this morning, we're not always going to feel like doing these things. These are acts of the will, trusting God that it is the right thing to do, whether we feel like doing it or not. You will not always feel like being patient. You will not always feel like being compassionate. Yet, right? There's a time where we just kind of like, kind of want to see, right? Like you run into the wall here because I warned you, right? But we act based on the will that, because we've received these things. Church, it means that we become gracious and forgiving, knowing that forgiveness is most often not deserved. Right? There are times where someone comes and asks for forgiveness. But most often it's not really deserved. And we can offer it because we received it. Listen to what, what Paul reminds them. I want you to do this right one another. Forgiving each other in verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We were guilty. We were not deserving. We could do nothing right, to argue our place. And yet we received grace and forgiveness. And so he says, church, I want you to forgive in this way. Right? It doesn't mean that we don't still need to see justice, that there might not still need to be boundaries. This isn't um, cheap grace. But that we, our tendency then is, right, sometimes it's to want to hold it out and say you've got to perform for your forgiveness. And yet God did not make us perform for our forgiveness. Church, it takes all of us. And this is why we started where we did. Is it, it, Anyone that stands in the, in, in the pulpit here could preach and say, this is the culture we want. We're a family. This is what we're going to do. And if no one does it, then people can come in and say, man, you talk a lot about family or you talk a lot about imaging Jesus, but I haven't experienced that. Right? It, it cannot just be knowledge. It cannot just be talk. It has to be lived out, and it must be lived out amongst all of us that this would be our experience, that this would be the culture that we are a grace-filled, forgiving, compassionate, kind, meek, humble, and patient family. 
offering grace and forgiveness. Right? We can offer grace and forgiveness to know that everyone is not maturing at the same speed. Right? Everyone's not starting in the same place um, from their family of origin, from their religious knowledge. Right? Like everyone moves at a different pace. And so we don't lord over someone, I've grown up faster than you. We show grace and patience as they mature. Listen, if you look at someone and say, hey, yeah, you had different circumstances than me, but you should be more like me, what pride is that? Like what arrogance is it that you would say that what you should be aspiring after isn't the Lord Jesus, but it should be to be more like me? He's calling them to be loving, to be united, to be one body. Verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's saying, church, if you love one another, then these others are going to come. These are ways to practically live it out. And you're going to be bound together as a family. And then finally, we've seen who who it's for, what it should look like, Now, how do we get it? Look at verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. He's saying, church, if you want these things that I've laid out, The Word has to be primary. The Word of God has to be primary. It has to be what we sing. It has to be what we preach. It has to be like how we have wisdom and how we encourage one another and what makes up the heart of a gospel community. And what, right? He's like, it's the Word of God. It is not simply, right, um, grandma wisdom. It's not simply West Texas cowboy wisdom. He said, it is the wisdom from God that is found in Scripture. And so that's why here we try to sing songs that point our hearts to the truths of Scripture. Because listen, you don't walk around on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday humming lines from a sermon, right? And that was a great one-liner Jeremy had, right? And, and just like, you're just like mulling it over and you brought, bring a little tune to it. Like, that's never happened, ever, right? But you would have a line from a song stick, a melody stick. And it just roots into your heart. It roots into your mind. And you just mull it over, over and over and over again. And so if that is simply a catchy tune, it's not sufficient. And if it is rooted in the Word of God, if it is a truth of Scripture, if it's a promise, if it's a characteristic of God that we have sung, how good is that for our souls? For that to be what we're singing, for that to be what we're humming throughout the week. And so we don't want to just sing any songs. We want to sing songs that point our hearts and and lift our chins to Jesus. We want our sermons to not be based on the personality and the character of the one in the pulpit, but we want it to be rooted in Scripture. So that regardless of who is standing here, that your expectation is that they're going to open the Word and they're going to point you to Jesus and they're going to say, listen, I'm merely the waiter. Look at the one who's brought the meal. He's, He's enough. He is sufficient. He is faithful. Right? That we are rooted in the Word, teaching one another, admonishing, which can be correcting or warning one another based on the Word. So the Word then becomes a balm to our soul. It is not a weapon 
where we lord over and beat and stab one another with the Word. It is a balm to our soul, and when necessary, it is a scalpel that cuts out offending things. Right? To remind us of who Jesus is. It plays both of those roles, but it is not a battering ram. And it, is not a, it is not a weapon to wound one another. It is a weapon to bring hope and to bring healing. And if there's correction necessary, it is for reconciliation and, and to have clear insight into who Jesus is. He says, I want you to do this, like all of you, dwell in you, let the Word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. It is, it is a joint co- co- collaboration. We do it. It's not just that you receive it, it's that you receive it and you give it and you do it in all of these relationships and all of these interactions. And you do it with gratitude. Because in gratitude, it means you see yourself rightly, that I'm in need of the Word. Not just that you're in need of the Word and I'm above you. Look at what Jesus has given me. I want you to have it. Look at where He's um, secured me and, and saved me and reconciled me and sustained me. I want you to have that. Right? Like that we are admonishing and teaching one another together with gratitude because we see that Jesus is the pinnacle of salvation, of creation, of history, and He's returning. And we want Him to be King. And so I can, I can be humble and I can be meek as we do this together because it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And it's about us having this reflection of Him in our church family. So church, when He says, in whatever you do, in word or deed, He's saying in the totality of your life, in whatever you do, not just on Sunday mornings at 11, but Tuesdays at 4, and Saturdays at 10 in the morning, right? And Wednesdays at 5 in the morning, and, and Saturday night, and whatever you do in the totality of your life, are you trusting God in the ordinary and in the mundane and in the boring and in the scary and in the great and in the joyous? Are you trusting God in those things? That whether your circumstances are beautiful or difficult, God is at work. He's at work in me. He's, he's refining me. And His Word gives me promises to anchor to. That Jesus is faithful and He is enough. That we can receive it and reflect it and pursue Him. That we would expect the Spirit to empower us. That whatever you do, I do it to the glory of God. So when we're compassionate, are we doing it for the glory of God as recipients of compassion? Or are we doing it so that we will receive glory for being compassionate? As we are being generous, are we doing it because God has first been generous with us and we can never begin to repay that? Or are we doing it so that we'll be known as generous? When we show kindness, is it because we've received kindness or it's because I want my reputation to be known as kind because then I get a little glory and then I get a little praise? And then I, right, my ego gets fed. He's saying that's why whatever we do, it's to the glory of God. It's trusting Him, recognizing that we are recipients of it, and so now we want to be reflectors of it as well. And trusting the process. And He is changing us from one degree of glory to the next. So listen, He's going to get into, in, in the weeks to come, specific um, human relationships and interactions, right? And how this begins to flesh itself out, not just in the church family, 
but in other relationships and, and situations as well. But this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is for those who are beloved and chosen, right? For those who have been called according to His purpose and will and are sons and daughters of the King. And so if that's you this morning, then we're going to, the band is going to come back up in a moment and we're going to sing to our King. Um, you are free at any point to, to stand up and go alone or with friends or with family and take the Lord's Supper. There's three different locations. Being reminded that, it, that the juice is His blood spilt on our behalf. The cracker is symbolic of His body crushed on our behalf so that this can be true this morning. It is not on our merit, but it's on the merit of Jesus that we have hope and peace and salvation and joy. And so if there is something that needs to be corrected, sin that needs to be confessed, relationships that need to be made right, that you would even do that prior to taking the Lord's Supper. Right? That we would expect and anticipate in these moments that the Lord is speaking and working and calling and refining and that we're not looking around seeing what's going on, but that we are letting the Spirit minister to us whether we're seated, seated or standing, whether we're moving or whether we need to engage with someone. That we would be this type of family and culture from Colossians 3 together. So if you need to repent, that verse 11 is not true for you, that you do feel like there are categories. Would you do that this morning? If there are places where the Lord has called you to say, you're not living in light of this, would you repent and then trust that it's the kindness of God who's leading you to see that anyway and is calling you to repentance? And if you've never walked with Jesus, would you hear Him calling you this morning and respond? There'll be some men and women in the back if you need someone to talk with, to pray with over any situation, any set of circumstances, that He would move and work among us now. Let's pray. Father, thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, we need you now to illuminate areas of our heart and of our mind and of our life that are not pleasing to you. Not that we would be crushed by those things, but that we could receive grace and mercy that is undeserved. And God, and in finding that and in tasting and seeing that you're good, that we would then reflect that to others. Giving grace where it is not deserved and forgiveness where it's not deserved because we get to honor you in doing that and please you in doing that. And God, that this place would be unified and at peace because you're doing that work by your Spirit. And it's powerful and it's transforming. And we're not faking it or having an appearance of wisdom, but that you are at work in each of us individually and collectively for our good and for your glory. You speak now and call your people to action, to worship for your glory. In Jesus' name.